You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Take a pause from your to-do list with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Manawalk Caves is intended for mature audiences. It contains strong language and depictions of bullying, violence, and sexual assault that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Also, this is an extremely immersive experience, and headphones are recommended. You're listening to The Manawalk Caves, a production of iHeartRadio, Blumhouse Television, and Psychopia Pictures. Her skin glowed. All the other kids had that dull look, no shine to them. But she glowed. Is that why you killed her? You wanted that glow for your own? I don't know. It weren't for me, like I said. I had to. You had to. Mm-hmm. Are you saying that someone made you do it? Or are you saying that there was somebody that no, was forcing no. you? No. Ain't nobody made me. Mm-hmm. I think what you're saying is that someone coerced you. No, he showed me the way, though. Who? I ain't supposed to talk about him. Mm-hmm. Mr. Idell, who is he? Every minute, I remain in Manawalk County. And every minute, James Fincher's execution draws near thicker the fog gets a ghost in the mirror and the hounds of hell dancing in your eyes I need to set things right the only way to do that is to find out who or what really killed the Hadley brothers the mouth sinks tar a river of evil climbed inside and tell 
can't get elected sheriff to Manawak County without the endorsement of the First Baptist Church. Delivering on a case like this was only surefire way Hooper could guarantee his re-election. I'm gonna give you a bit of advice. Between you and me, I wouldn't go digging around stirring up trouble if I was you. It's best if you just let things play out the way they're supposed to. August 4th, 2021, it's 11, um, it's 11, 11 a.m. I'm tracing Detective Solomon Smith's footsteps from his investigation of the Hadley murders 14 years ago. One place his investigation led him, Carter High School. So this morning I'm meeting with Principal Wesley Hunt. Mr. Hunt was principal when I went to school there and for a long time before that, probably went to Carter High himself. Everyone did. No other choice in this part of Manawalk. Anyway, Principal Hunt was one of the last people Detective Smith talked to before he disappeared. And I want to know why. Principal Hunt? Yep. Julian. Julian Salas. Oh, right. Mr. Salas. Forgive me, it's been a long time. Now still in okay time? Yep, fine. If you don't mind walking with me. Sure. So you were uh, wanting to know about Richard Rydell? Oh, well, not exactly. Oh? On the phone, you mentioned Detective Solomon Smith. That's right. So I figured it's about Rydell. <laughs> he was a janitor here when Jennifer was a senior. Yes, I know, anyway, but... Anyway, he didn't exactly stick out, you know? Kind of kind of just blended in with a wallpaper. Kept his head down, mopped the floors, kept the place spotless, and left when he was done. Just an unremarkable type of guy. Until he wasn't, I guess. Yeah, it's unthinkable what he did to that girl. She's one of the brightest we'd ever had. Got herself into that women's college all by herself. I'm actually here about the last time you talked to Detective Smith, when he was here investigating the murders of Deacon and Thomas Hadley. Okay. I was just curious if you remember what the detective was looking for when he stopped by that last time. Attendance records from May 18, 2007. Attendance records? Yep. Okay. Um, do you still have those? Nope. Gave them to the detective. He never returned them either. Do you know what he wanted with those? Well, I imagine he wanted to know who else was absent from school that afternoon. Besides Deacon and Thomas and, of course, James Fincher. Maybe he was aiming to figure out who else might have gone out to the caves that day. Someone always knows something. That was graduation week. There were lots of ceremonies and such, as I'm sure you recall. Attendance is always highest on that week. I'll have to see if Joe Campbell can help me find those school records that Principal Hunt said he gave to Detective Smith. If there were other kids absent from school on May 18th, 2007, then maybe they were there. At the caves, when the Hadley brothers were murdered. Maybe they saw something. Or hell, maybe they killed him. But as far as I knew, the only one who spent more time at the caves than anyone was in fact James Fincher.
He was like a brother. We both came from pain. Though our stories were different, we were the same. We weren't just lonely, we were alone, in charge of ourselves, our lives, even though far too young. I remember the first time we brought him down to see the caves. When we crested over the small ridge and laid eyes on the hole, I fell silent. I watched Finch see them for the first time, wonder mixed with fear, mixed with excitement. I'll never forget that. It's burned into my brain. He was taken by them, like me. How far back did they go? That's what? I remember Finch's body against the mouth of the cavern, small and unguarded. He'd walked ahead of me, and I remember catching up to him, placing my hand on his shoulder. We walked in far. This is amazing. Heard the sounds of the bats above and deep inside. <laughs> Heard the strange echoes of air, the wind catching the stone off kilter. It was as humid inside as it was outside, but so cool. You felt almost naked as your teenage sweat evaporated off your back and chest in that air. And hearing your own breath, and the breath of your friend. We stood there in the dark, looking deeper in, wondering if we should go further down. Holding hands, unsure and clammy, but holding hands. <laughs> this bell completely fucking broken by the eruption of a belch reverberating off the cave walls and echoing into the sky. Tyler was waiting for us inside. He'd managed to spirit a few tall boys away from an uncle. And so the three of us sat there on the rocks and drank them warm and told dumb jokes and talked about some imagined future. But I remember the spell before it was broken. Finch was mesmerized by the caves, hypnotized. It was like we'd shown him the only cool thing in the hellhole of a town he was stuck in. He loved the caves. All he wanted to do was go there. And after he was expelled, he would go there alone. We were worried Griff Washington might catch him trespassing. No telling what that racist would do. Maybe loose one of the pit bulls on him. But Finch went anyway. He'd found an out. A world apart, an escape. And he'd become completely fascinated. He even spent the night there a few times by himself and started mapping the caves out in great detail. He also started going to the library to find out their history. That's when he read Dr. Tratner's book, Gods in the Mountain, Monsters in the Valley, or some shit like that. It was a history of Appalachian folklore. Finch wrote to Professor Tratner too, wanting to know everything he could. These same letters were later used to convict him of murder. August 4th, 2021, 2.23 p.m. By the time Tyler and I found the remains of Deacon and Thomas, any rite of passage involving Griff Washington's property had long since been squashed. Back in the 90s, it used to be that Griff was the older guy who'd sell you cigarettes or a six-pack of crappy beer for $20 markup. He didn't give a shit about kids hanging out in his land because he saw it as a financial opportunity, if anything. 
So when kids wanted to get away from their parents, you know, be a rebel for the night, they'd sneak off to Griff's. Eventually, this led to a tradition amongst Manawalk County high schoolers. Everybody knew the caves weren't safe. There were all kinds of stories about monsters and kids going missing and what have you. But when you're a teenager, that's part of the appeal. So the legend grew, as legends do. And they still linger today. Here's the deal. Knowledge comes in different flavors, right? In the case of the Manawalk Caves, on the one hand, there's evidence, testimony, police reports, autopsies, a coroner's report, expert analysis, and so on. On the other hand, there's superstition and folklore. Just a horrible thing, what happened to those boys. Did you ever meet James Fincher in person, Dr. Trevor? No, no, I only respond to letters that he sent. Do you think he did it, Detective? I'd be very interested to hear what you think, based on your relationship with James. <sighs> I'd say it's hardly a relationship. You corresponded. We weren't pen pals, if that's what you're trying to imply. Uh, his letters displayed a certain engagement, shall we say. Mm. Students come in, they don't care. Dr. Dale Tratner. I looked him up. On their website, it says he was a cultural anthropologist and historian at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Give him some sense of encouragement. Okay. What was he curious about? He's curious about those damn caves. Mm-hmm. There is a particularly disturbing trend to those narratives that attach themselves to the Manawak caves. Finch had been writing letters to Dr. Tratner before he was arrested, so Smith was doing his due diligence. Stories about the caves go way back, beyond early settler folklore. <laughs> what do you mean, like? Like ghosts and witches, some kind of hillbilly voodoo or something? Hmm? I guess something like that. You know, there's some history about it, too. What was that? The Nadine O'Leary story in the 1890s. Hmm. The O'Leary family took shelter during a winter blizzard and became trapped inside the caves. Got snowed in. That spring, as the world thawed, only the youngest daughter, Nadine O'Leary, emerged from the cave. That's the event Fincher was most interested in discussing. Okay. Why is that? It's one of these great unsolved mysteries of this area. When they asked little Nadine how she made out of those caves back to town, she said she didn't do it alone. But when they searched the caves that spring, all the family members were accounted for. The remains were still there. Mm. There's no way little Nadine O'Leary could have survived that trek out of those damn mountains by herself. She's only four years old, Detective. You still have those letters Fincher wrote you? I'm sure I have them somewhere. I'll find them for you. These were the letters that the prosecution used against Finch. They said that the letters proved he was rational and aware of his actions. They claimed this revealed the strategy on Fincher's part, a criminal mind. They wove a narrative for the jury that Finch killed the Hadley brothers out of revenge after he was bullied by them. To add spice to their argument... They referenced his library books and his secondhand collection of VHS tapes and CDs. They claimed his revenge plot was based in adolescent fantasies, delusions about the supernatural, spirits and demons, and that based on the violent nature of his killings, he had been inspired by extreme horror movies and violent music and deathcore metal. 
their big legal fucking argument was that Fincher's motive was revenge and that his plot to kill the Hadley brothers was fueled by delusions. Beliefs about possession, the paranormal, and evil from within the caves. I want you to take a look at the evidence here. On one hand, we have a crime scene. The cave system on Mr. Washington's property and the injuries sustained by the Hadley boys within that crime scene. And then, on the other hand, we have James Fincher. We have his letters revealing an insatiable curiosity about the, and I quote, curse of the caves, including the mutilation of human flesh as part of a ritual sacrifice required by the demonic forces within those caves the letting of human blood, and so on. Now, when you take those factors and put them together, the overwhelming evidence points to the fact that this case has all the markings of a ritualistic, occult murder. A satanic murder, if you will. Then there's evidence of premeditation evidence that this was a meticulously constructed crime. The crime scene itself matching the drawings and diagrams found in the defendant's own bedroom. Diagrams of the caves with markings that match the exact location where the bodies were found. And it is clear that James Fincher calculated, plotted, and premeditated the cold-blooded murders of Deacon and Thomas Hadley in those caves. What was done to Thomas and Deacon Hadley is hard to comprehend. But it happened. It's not a dream. It's not fiction. The defense will tell us that there is no concrete evidence that the defendant, James Fincher, perpetrated these heinous and brutal acts, despite witness testimony and a clear motive. These are the facts. And the fact is that it doesn't matter if we believe the caves are haunted. It doesn't matter if any of us believe in demons or ghosts or Satan himself. The only thing that matters is what James Fincher believes. Fincher's was a witch trial. I highly doubt such arguments as the prosecution made then would have held weight anywhere else in the civilized world. But this is Manawal County. Between the mind grip that Reverend Perkins had on the folks of this little Salem and the deep-seated superstitions about the caves, it was actually kind of a genius prosecution strategy. After all, there was plenty of lore surrounding the caves. The legend I always heard was that someone lived in the caves, half man, half demon. Like Dr. Tratner said, these kinds of stories exist all over the world. They're basically warnings for kids to stay out of the woods, right? There are fucking wolves in there, kiddo, and they want your innocence and any food you're bringing to granny. In the case of Manawalk, the stories were meant to keep us away from those goddamn caves. But rumors are built partially on evidence, too. They're kind of more like theories that live somewhere between fact and fiction. Two years after Jennifer Fowler left Manawalk County, 
A boy named Matthew Sweetser was found dead in the caves with a single action revolver in his hand. Apparently, he was related to Richard Rydell. Second cousin once removed or something. Well, when the Hadley brothers were found dead in the cave, everyone had the same thought. There's a murderer amongst us. You'd think that thought would charge every interaction with dread, suspicion, but instead it sort of bound the town together. An entire town against one 18-year-old boy. I'm heading over to meet Fincher's sister now, Dina. You recording this? Oh, if it's all right with you, yeah, it helps with the details, which helps with, you know, our case. Uh, listen, thanks, you know, for agreeing to even this, though, like, just thanks for meeting with me Don't today. get it twisted. This is for James, not for you. I don't care about whatever little self-forgiveness journey you're on. You said you wanted to help my brother get off death row. That's the only reason. And I mean the only reason you are here. Yeah, I... I get all that. You're right, obviously, and that's what I want to do, too, so... Jimmy, turn that thing down! We got company! Dina's son Jimmy was born a few months after his uncle James Fincher was put on death row. James wasn't any different than any other... Jimmy's Jimmy. 14 now. Really. He was named after his uncle, but James Fincher was never Jimmy to me. He wasn't even James, he was just Finch. Finch had a speech impediment told me once that words that start with the letter J gave him a hard time. Any letters that required his tongue to touch the top of his mouth. So he hated saying his own name, James. He would stutter, elongate the vowels, try to bury the consonants. I always made a point to call him Finch after he told me that. So, Finch. Finch and his younger sister Dina moved to Manawa County when they were 12 and 16. I felt sorry for Finch from the second he first stepped foot on our school bus. He looked frail and wide-eyed. The wheels were spinning in his mind like a turbine. And it's tough to be a new kid. But a new kid that stood out? I mean, who was this guy? Where did he come from? And the rumors spread quick. He'd slaughtered both of his parents with nothing but a pocket knife. He was really a 35-year-old undercover agent sent by the FBI to investigate a chemical spill in the town's drinking water. He was a genuine homosexual and sent to Manawak for conversion therapy. Whatever was said about James Fincher, when he first showed up, it was a disruption. And it stoked the tribal instincts in Pottsville clans. And it didn't take long for bullies to prey on him either. I wanted to stand up for him, but I couldn't. Not the time Deacon Hadley threw a cup of warm piss on his head from the second-story bathroom. And not the time Thomas Hadley locked him in his locker. I wanted to stop it, but I knew it would just make matters worse for me. I'd suffered bullying myself. All through junior high. And I learned how not to call attention to myself. So I did nothing. At first... But not calling attention to yourself isn't a skill Finch would ever be able to master. He had only been riding the bus for a week before Thomas Hadley sat down next to him, 
reached into his lunch bag, pulled out a carton of chocolate milk, and poured it over Finch's head. I remember panicking. My heart was pounding in my chest, my mouth got dry, and I couldn't breathe. I remember Thomas crushing the carton against Finch's chest. Finch didn't fight back. He didn't even react. Maybe he thought that if he did stand up to them, it would only make things worse for him and his sister. Maybe he just checked out, disassociated as a, as a means of survival. That's what I used to do. In the sixth grade, I was the easy target. I wasn't into the shit that the other kids lacked. I didn't play sports. I loved Doctor Who and anime and would rather read a book than play outside. So they called me loser or geek or faggot. They didn't ask what you're reading. They asked what you're reading for. Thomas and Deacon used to terrorize me. Once they cornered me in the back of the auditorium and they beat my ass and dumped a piss on me. And I was too terrified and too ashamed to call for help. Instead, I remember feeling like I wasn't even there. Like I had gone from my body, gone from the school, gone from Manawa County, my soul taking refuge someplace safe. Any place but there. But that day on the bus with Fincher, something snapped. After Thomas poured his milk on Fincher's head, Dooley Tapper joined in. Monkey see, monkey do. I remember seeing Dooley decide to do it. His dull fucking face looking around to see if the bus driver even gave a shit. He started to pour his orange juice on Finch. I don't know. Maybe it was because Dooley was less of a threat than Thomas Hadley, but suddenly all of the PTSD and the shame I'd carried in my gut since sixth grade. I turned to rage. I don't think I was even completely conscious when I reached out and smacked the juice out of Dooley's fat hand and watched it explode on his face. It was my first legit fight. Only lasted a minute before the bus driver stopped the bus and broke it up. I remember the tears came, hot and salty, and I, I couldn't stop them. Not supposed to cry when you're a 17 year old, but I, I couldn't hold them back anymore. Well, look who wears the pants in this love affair. That's what Deacon said. Everyone laughed. After that, they called us lovers. You know, I told you there was lovers, didn't I? <laughs> me and Finch. <laughs> they spread their rumors. Anyway, me and Dooley got suspended from the bus, so Dina and Finch were on their own after that. And it wasn't long before Dina suffered the attention of the Hadleys. The looks and the staring probably wasn't new for Dina. Even at 14 years old. Dina wasn't particularly well-developed. She was behind what would be considered average for her age, physically speaking. She dressed primarily in her brother's hand-me-down clothes. She kept her eyes down, her nose out of trouble, and tried not to be noticed. And that's because she was always noticed. Dina Fincher was her own disruption in Manawa County. But where Finch had a speech impediment for people to latch onto, Dina was just... female. And to borrow the phrase that Deacon Hadley was so fond of using, Dina was exotic. The same word used to describe alien fruits and endangered animals and lascivious dances applied here to a young girl. Her skin darker, eyes deeper, gait timid, and Deacon became fixated on Dina Fincher. He started referring to her as his little squaw. 
a blatant ethnic and sexual slur. That's when the Finchers quit riding the bus. Unfortunately, in the end, the bus probably would have been safer. It was the last day before spring break. Dina left school that day, same as any other day. While she waited for her brother, she noticed Deacon and Thomas Hadley propped up against a tree watching her. When they caught her eye, things escalated. Lewd mouth gestures, wolf whistles, crotch grabbing. When Finch finally arrived, Dina didn't mention it because it wasn't out of the ordinary behavior. This kind of thing happened so often with the boys of Manawa County that Dina had just gotten used to it. So she dismissed it like she would on any other given day and began the three-mile walk back to the Splinter Gap trailer park with her brother. Dina was aware that the Hadley brothers were following them, but she wasn't worried. She had her brother there. And besides, following wasn't new either. Anything to get a rise out of her wasn't new. She had been trained time and time again to believe that men were full of empty threats, but lacked the gumption to actually make good on them. But when the Hadleys were still following them, out past where the sidewalk ended, down the desolate stretch of mountain road leading towards Splinter Gap, Dina started getting nervous. Then it happened. Thomas Hadley had gotten a hold of a rock about the size of a grapefruit and let it fly across the back of Finch's head. It dropped him. And Thomas pinned him down on the grass where he was powerless to stop Deacon from going after his sister. Jimmy doesn't know the particulars about his birth or that his uncle's in jail because he killed Jimmy's biological father. Wait, what? Jimmy's biological father? Jimmy's biological father was Deacon Hadley. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. 
find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I don't know why it never occurred to me who was the father of Dina's son, Jimmy. But she wasn't bashful about letting me know. Dina was assaulted, violated, and impregnated by Deacon Hadley. I didn't know. No one does. It's a town secret. Except that it ain't. It was kept out of the trial. Why? Bobby Hadley didn't want it out. The defense attorney didn't want the jury hearing that either. It only made the prosecution's argument stronger because it would have shown a clear motive. Undeniable. They still went with revenge, but they couldn't prove anything. James was convicted completely on circumstantial evidence. Well, he didn't have an alibi either. Look, I know he's innocent too. But it doesn't matter what we think. We need to think out of the box. Anything to help us do that. I just, I want to get your perspective if I can. Okay. Look. James will always try to protect me. But he ain't capable of murder. Look, we come from a fucked up situation. Our father was abusive. I don't remember much. He was just a monster for when I was little. I was terrified of him. But when he was gone, I started to come out of my shell. They thought I was a mute. But when he left, I started talking. Nobody knew I could talk until he left us. But our problems weren't over. Far from it. Our mother had a serious mental illness. Like what? I don't know. She just wasn't right. And by the time I was five, she was certifiable. Like I had this doll, right? A Barbie knockoff doll that I found out in the playground somewhere. James said I would spend hours playing with her like she was my only friend. (laughs) Then one morning I found my mother burying my doll in the backyard. Mama says she thought the doll was evil. Thought she was talking to me, telling me bad things, turning me against her. After that, she started getting mean, lashing out, taking over where Dad left off. And there were some beatings. Point is, James always tried to protect me. Eventually, they took her away. Florida State Psychiatric Hospital and... Me and James got shipped up here to beautiful Manawal County. We'd never even met our grandma until the day we arrived in Splinter Gap. And boy, did she ever make it clear that she only took us in for that government assistance money. She didn't even have a room for us. Her old trailer had one bedroom, and she never came out of it. So James, he slept on the floor so I could sleep cozy on the couch. 
And when Grandma died and he became a legal guardian, he gave me her bedroom. There wasn't a single day I went to school and he wasn't right there next to me, on the bus or walking me to school and back home again. And that includes after he got expelled. Even when he wasn't allowed on campus no more, he told me not to ride the bus. He'd walk me. And he'd just wait outside of school property all day long until the last bell rang and he could walk me home again. I'd see him there through the classroom windows, just sitting and waiting, keeping an eye out. Never met a sweeter human being than James. No, I know. I remember. But isn't that the same motive that the prosecution used to convict him? His need to protect you? Grandma used to keep chickens out back, and me and James, our job was to make sure they had worms and feed and water. Sometimes Grandma would let the rooster in the coop to breed. And when the little chicks would hatch, it was James's job to keep them alive. To protect them from the predators. Rats, mostly. Rats would eat the baby chicks, so... Mama gave James the twenty-two rifle and made him sit out there in the cold and the dark. And his job was to shoot the rats. Well, one day he shot one. Blew its back half off. But it didn't die. It was still breathing, suffering. James had to shoot it again at point blank. He couldn't kill nothing anymore after that. Not even spiders or snakes or nothing. There's no way he could have killed those boys. Even if he had more than enough reason to do so, it's not in his nature. What about that fight? He publicly attacked the Hadley brothers. You're goddamn right he did. But fighting and murder ain't the same. And that one fight got used against him. They keep the people that are on top on top, and they keep the people on the bottom on the bottom. That one fight, that was all it took to get James where he is now. But he still just doesn't have the poison inside him it would take to do a thing like that. Like the way they found their bodies. Dina Fincher was sexually assaulted by Deacon Hadley. And she became an adult in a single instant. The gap between her innocent years and the rest of her life was about three minutes. Three minutes outside of her own body. Maybe her soul drifted far away from her body that day. Maybe in her mind she flew away. Maybe back to Florida to bury her innocence in the dirt next to that knockoff Barbie doll. When it was over, Thomas and Deacon just got up. They slung their backpacks over their shoulders like they would walk it home from their bus stop on any other day of the week. They didn't say anything. No threats. No warnings. They just got up and left Dina and Finch lying in the high grass. The Finchers had no health insurance. Their grandmother had passed away only months after Finch turned 18, thrusting him into the responsibilities of adulthood long before most kids his age have even figured out how to microwave a cup of noodles. Somewhere between becoming Dina's legal guardian and trying to graduate high school, it had never occurred to Finch that they might need health care. They didn't have any money saved. Every job Finch had applied for, he had been denied because of some bullshit claims of his disability. Yes, that's what they called his speech impediment. 
being a liability or whatever other excuse was being doled out at the particular establishment. So Finch and Dina never got medical help that day. Even though Finch suffered from a nasty head wound and bled from the back of his skull, and Dina was now a physically and emotionally traumatized survivor of Deacon Hadley. The Fincher siblings walked back to their trailer. Finch did everything he could to help his sister while presumably suffering through a concussion. The next day, they went back to school. According to Dina Fincher, it was her brother's idea to go back. He knew their best bet of survival was to finish their educations, get their diplomas, and get the hell out of Dodge. So they put their heads down, studied hard, and worked towards that goal. But the forces that be weren't content on letting the Finchers get on with their lives. And a few weeks later, Dina found out that she was pregnant. There were so many factors. But I think that's what really did it. The mountain weight of everything gets so heavy you can't carry it anymore and you're crushed under the pressure of all that muck and bullshit. When Finch found out that Dina was pregnant, that in spite of all that fighting to survive and remaining calm and steadfast despite that torment, trying to win through sheer endurance, that there was still going to be another life dragged against its will into this cesspool of a world, he fucking cracked. He waited all through the school day. I remember seeing him all hopped up on adrenaline, his face going purple in the blotchy patches around his cheeks and collar, his leg bouncing so hard that it made his desk shake and caused a disruption in class. The second that bell rang, he went for it. He hunted Deacon Hadley down like a well-trained predator. He had stashed a broken axe handle in the bushes near where the Hadley brothers used to roost in the schoolyard at recess. Finch just walked, quietly walked over to them as they watched him, snickering despite his fearless approach. Before they could put together what was happening, Finch retrieved his axe handle and started swinging. He gave them hell on earth right there in the schoolyard. I remember he was standing over Deacon swinging wildly. Thomas tried to pull him back but ended up on the wrong side of Finch's elbow. That laid him out too bleeding on the grass. The explosive power of so much pent-up rage. Contents under pressure, he snapped. I swear to God, Finch had the strength of ten full-grown men that day. Finch, wait! That's all the fight you got in here? Then the tears came, but not the Hadleys. Finch, for all his rage, was the only one crying. And then came the laughter. Thomas Hadley, that goddamn laugh, I'll never forget it. Fincher held back by Tyler crying, and Thomas bleeding on the ground laughing like a fucking hyena. James may have done some physical damage. He drew a little blood, but they'd still won. They had broken him and his sister, and because of that, nothing would ever change around these parts. Or so I thought. Finch was expelled, obviously. Bobby Hadley, Thomas and Deacon's father just so happened to be good friends with the district attorney at the time. They were about to press charges. But it was Dina, 
who retaliated. A DNA test proven Deacon was the father of her unborn child. She rebutted with a proof of the Hadley boy's own guilt if any legal moves were made against her brother. And so she created a stalemate. If her brother was going to jail, so were Bobby Hadley's sons. And if Bobby would back down, she'd keep the rape out of the papers and no one would ever know about it. So he backed down. And the Hadley boys, not even a slap on the wrist. It was perfect injustice. It's no wonder Sheriff Hooper picked Finch as his lead suspect in the Hadley murders after those boys were found eviscerated in the caves four months later. And the whole town lit up like a medieval mob, ready to hunt the monster down with pitchforks and torches, drive it out from the fucking cave. Everyone wanted Fincher's head on a stick. Everyone except Detective Solomon Smith. Clark Peters as Detective Solomon Smith, Nick Searcy as Sheriff Kirby Hooper, Justin Wellborn as Tyler Wilson, Jill Jane Clements as Jill Campbell, Brad Carter as Dooley Tappert, Scott Poitras as Reverend Perkins, Samantha Ashley as Dina Fincher, Justin Matthew Smith as Paul Solace, Tara Oaks as Laura Solace, Jonathan Horn as Deacon Hadley, Alden Karanovich as Thomas Hadley, Mike W. Anderson as Griff Washington, Bodie Walteroth as Jimmy Fincher, Brian McClure as Ian Spinks, Larry Clark as Bobby Hadley, Peyton Fallis as Ed LeBlanc, Vic Polizis as William Fowler, Nick Tikoski as Richard Rydell, and Aileen Loy as The Darkness. With additional performances by Clint McGowan, Dina Dill, Edward Howard, Henry Foster Brown, Jamie Joseph, Juan Monsalves, Christopher Curry, Bailey Heineman, David Mitchell, and Bernard Sitaro Clark. Created by Connell Byrne and Dan Bush. Written by Dan Bush, Zoe Cooper, and Nicholas Dukoski. Featuring our theme song, Killer Inside. Written, produced, and performed by Lyra Lynn. Our executive producers are Matt Frederick, Alexander Williams, Michael Monti, and Courtney DeFries. Our executive producers at Blumhouse Television are Jeremy Gold, Chris Dickey, and Noah Feinberg. Produced by Dan Bush. Music by Ben Lovett. Additional music by Alexander Rodriguez. Edited by Dan Bush, Chris Childs, Stephen Perez, and David Chen. Sound design by Benjamin Malcolm. Dialogue editing and sound mixing by Juan Campos. Recorded at Studio Awesome in Los Angeles. Soundbite Studio in Atlanta. And Echo Mountain in Asheville. Casting by Sunday Bowling Kennedy and Meg Mormon. Our dialect coach is Linda Bassesti. Assistant Director, Michael Monti. Second Assistant Director, Script Supervisor, and Production Coordinator, Sarah Klein. Supervising Producer, Josh Thane. Special thanks to Mary Ellen and Jason Davis, Jonathan Dieter, 
and Joe Rickman. The Manawak Caves is a production of iHeartRadio, Blumhouse Television, and Psychopia Pictures. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.